welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 88. We are climbing ever so close to that magical and elusive episode 100. I'm excited. I know you're excited. I'm sure you, you haven't even been able to sleep thinking about how exciting it is that I'm getting close to episode 100, when, of course, in reality, it means very little. But uh, it is a nice milestone, and I always uh, try to... Keep in mind that this is thanks to you guys. Thanks to you guys for continuing to support the show, spread the word about it, give us the positive reviews on iTunes, on uh, Google Play, Stitcher, spreading it around on Facebook, sharing it with your friends, emailing it out. Uh, all of that is so appreciated. Uh, the, the, the podcast is growing, and it's growing pretty significantly, and uh, I feel very gratified to know that people are really appreciating it. So thank you to you guys for continuing to support it, and also to continue to support Counterpunch, because because I really do think it's important that we uh, maintain these independent spaces that we have on the left in the alternative media, uh, particularly now, given Trump, given the resurgence of the right wing, both in the U.S., in Latin America, and increasingly in Europe as well. Uh, this is all the more important as the political climate gets more and more uh, ominous. So uh, if you agree with me about the importance of Counterpunch, you can get a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great magazine just in and of itself, but it's also a great way to support Counterpunch, support the Counterpunch project, and to show, you know, show some love to the Counterpunch team who really do uh, so much work to bring Counterpunch every single day online, and uh, the uh, bi-monthly articles and um, bi-monthly columns and so forth, so uh, please do consider that. Of course, as I mentioned, spreading the word about this show is always appreciated, and if I could, let me just do another little quick plug for uh, my other podcast and my other materials which you can find on my patreon page that's patreon.com forward slash eric Dreitzer. i have a whole other podcast there with a bunch of other cool guests and a lot of other materials coming there soon including uh uh videos and articles and uh cr- some creative work that i'm that i'm doing and a whole bunch of other stuff so if you like what i got here going on counterpunch radio check out the patreon page to see some of my other work and uh, become a supporter there anyway uh let me turn to my guest uh today I'm very happy to have him on the show. Um, I think he is going to help us to understand some of the critical issues going on right now, both in Brazil and in Latin America generally. Uh, He is Mike Fox. He is a freelance journalist based there in Brazil. He was the co-author of the book Latin America's Turbulent Transitions, The Future of 21st Century Socialism. You can follow him on Twitter at mfox underscore us mike fox welcome to counterpunch radio thanks so much man so uh i want to begin with some of the uh really recent developments that have been taking place there in brazil because uh to a large degree it's flying under the radar and certainly a lot of the backstory has flown under the radar so let's just begin with the most recent developments what are we seeing right now in terms of these ongoing protests stemming from uh recent revelations about president temer uh corruption scandal and so forth give us a an update on how we've gotten to this point. It's pretty intense. Uh, what you had just two days ago in Brasilia, Brazil's capital, uh, was a massive march of unions, the MST, the landless workers movement, social movements, uh, all underneath the heading of the, the popular Brazil front. 
And they were protesting against, obviously, Michel Temer, calling him for to step down, calling for direct elections. That's kind of one of the big hashtags that's out in social media now is Gireto Ja. And it kind of is a reminder of the big movement in the early 90s um, against the then-president caller to get him out because of corruption and to call for for new elections. Um, so they were there protesting, also specifically against a, a labor reform bill, which is running through Congress and which is going to, you know, push outsourcing and, uh, and, and gut the labor law. And that's why really a lot of people are kind of up for arms around them. They've been planning it for weeks and it just happened to fall days after this bombshell of an audio leak dropped late last week. So basically this audio leak, what is it? Um, you had the head of JBS, which is the largest meat exporter in Brazil, and he released this audio leak. In it, President Temer uh, is telling him that he needs to continue paying hush money to the head of the lower house, Eduardo Cunha, the, the former head of the lower house, who is actually in jail in Paraná right now. Eduardo Cunha um, led the impeachment proceedings against, he pushed it, began it, and led the impeachment proceedings against former President uh, Dilma Rousseff last year. So there's there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack that we're going to be talking about this whole time. But what this meant, it was the very first time that Temer was actually himself tagged up, recorded uh, in this whole massive Lava Jato scandal that's been ongoing for over three years here and have, has already taken down dozens, hundreds of, of different politicians. So this is huge. It was came as a bombshell. It also... In the same audio, which was leaked at the same time, uh, Acio Neves, who is the president of the PSDB, it's the, that's the leading right wing, the party. They're the staunch enemies of the Workers' Party. Uh, and he was also caught up in this, uh, actually receiving funds from JBS. And what it meant is he was then suspended from, um, from Congress and it's very likely he was one of the front runners for the 2018 elections. It's very likely that he will not be running. So all this is happening at the same time. There's tons of speculations about kind of what's happening. You've got the media, which is now beginning to turn on Temer, which is huge because he's kind of been the golden boy of the media over the last year since the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff just over a year ago. Uh, and then to bring it back up to the marches, which just happened two days ago, Temer called out the, the 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 armed forces against the protesters and they it was you know it was it, it was massive with tear gas and uh and rubber bullets and stun grenades and it was one of the the most violent kind of responses to the social movements and to the unions that we've seen in a long time he's he's called them out for a full week to quote unquote protect brasilia protect the buildings from vandalism and whatnot this is scary for a lot of Brazilians because it's reminiscent of the dictatorship. And it's happening at a point in which Temer is obviously on a very fragile um, kind of foundation. And a lot of people are, are, are kind of nervous about what that might mean. He's actually calling out the military to, 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 to stand up and fight back against protesters in the streets. That's a little nerve wracking. So there's a lot that's happening recently. And, 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 and you know, things are changing day by day. You know, tomorrow there might be another release. Within the next week, we don't know what's really happening. Will 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 Temer have said he said he's not going to step down, uh, he's not going to resign. But will there, be, there will will there be some sort of impeachment? Will there be some sort of a move for an indirect elections within within Congress and the Senate, which is legal, you know, if he does, if if he does step down, 
uh, or will the, there be direct elections, which is really what, what people are calling for? There's a lot of questions there. No doubt. And just as a procedural question, uh, where do we stand in terms of representation in the Brazilian uh, parliament, in the government? I mean, it, are, are the numbers on the side of those who would want to impeach Temer or does Temer and his gang really have the numbers to defend themselves? So the numbers, uh, yeah. A, first off, this is the most conservative Congress that you've had in in decades, uh, and it's also extremely, extremely corrupt. Roughly two-thirds of the people that voted to oust Dilma Rousseff last year in both the Congress and the Senate are themselves under investigation for corruption, and Dilma wasn't. Um, and so you have all this that's happening. It, it's kind of like if the Republicans held supermajorities in both the House and the Senate. So it's very unlikely that Temer would be impeached. They would have no reason to do that. Um, that said, what we're seeing is kind of this shift away from massive outright support for Temer and more support for, for the, the Temer's policies. Um, since Temer came into office, like I said, just over a year ago, he's instituted this, this, this widespread austerity reform. They've locked in frozen government spending for the, for the next 20 years. Uh, they passed the first outsourcing law in, in March which basically made outsourcing legal across the board, increased the amount of time that, that one could work as a, as a, in, a, in a temporary contract, and said that, that companies didn't have to pay any benefits or give any benefits to, their, to those employees. And they're trying to push through this labor reform, which is obviously uh, a major reason why people are in the streets. And there's also a, a pension reform, which would be a constitutional change, and that's also up for debate. This is all on top of the privatization plans that that Temer and his government has been pushing. They're, they're, they're moving to privatize airports and ports and highways and major infrastructure projects. They've moved to, to, to sell off mining concessions and open up pre-sal. Pre-sal is this massive offshore um, uh, reserves off the coast of Espiritu Santo and Rio de Janeiro, and they've moved to open that up in a way that, that had never been done before and had not been legal. So all this is happening under, under the Temer government. And the people that are in Congress uh, and the Senate at this point, they want to continue with the business as usual, right. whether that's under Temer. That's another question. I well, don't that, see an impeachment happening right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really the question is, is Temer, for, from the right wing perspective and from the uh, the vested interests, finance capital and so forth, uh, I, I could see a scenario in which they look at Temer as damaged goods at this point, someone who really can't deliver on all of the, uh, you know, the, the critical, quote unquote, reforms uh, that they're looking for. Right. That's exactly what's happening at this moment. and that, And that's why you're also seeing kind of the, the you know, mainstream media global, which is the major station. It's kind of like Fox, but imagine if Fox has been around for 50 years and had much more of the market share. It is the number one in kind of the market. And they've just turned their back on Temer right after the, the, um, this leak came out, which is, which is, which is pretty impressive. To, uh, global doesn't just turn their back on conservative presidents that are pushing their agendas. Uh, and so there's a lot of questions about why that's happening. But it is happening, and I think that's an important point. Well, the, I mean, so when you say questions about why their coverage uh, is, you know, what it is, I mean, to me, that really is an indication of the uh, the, the ruling class, the right wing, and uh, essentially they're throwing Temer under the bus. There's that, but there's also some question. Apparently, JBS 
what's been coming out recently is is apparently JBS is 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 a financier of Global. Uh, and JBS is Brazil's largest meat exporter, and uh, and they were obviously the ones that leaked the audio. And so, is are there are there other games being played here? This is this is the 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 complicated thing about trying to understand what's happening in Brazil is it's super corrupt, and there's all these underlying um, games and backdoor deals happening that aren't on the surface. And trying to understand what is actually happening underneath all this is super complicated. For instance, we know that now that you know Cunha has been receiving this hush money, we know that he knows tons of stuff that he would come out with when he was kicked out um, of as, as, as the head of the, the lower house last year, he came out and said, oh, well, I've got a ton of stuff that I'm going to be leaking and just you better watch out for this. He hasn't come out with any of it yet, but we know it's there. And so he's been, he's been making money off of it. It's a way of, of kind of making their cash. And that's what you're kind of seeing right now is the implosion of the, the, the political class within Brazil as people are, are, are kind of wiretapping each other and recording conversations so they can use that as clout and plea bargains later on if they get caught up in the mix uh, and taking down their own former allies and it doesn't matter who you are. And so it, it, it's fascinating. It's also really, really scary and it's, un, and it's showing what, you know, it's shining light on what the reality has been in Brazil for a long time. This is what people know already, but now it's coming to the fore. Absolutely. Now, uh, in terms of the uh, force that was called out into the streets, uh, you know, if you read the headlines from BBC and uh, New York Times and so forth, it's usually some variation on, you know, protests turn violent in Brazil and, uh, you know, unions and workers turn violent and so forth. But can you tell us a little bit about the reality of the violence that's taking that, that that's taken place in these last few days? Because, you know, just like in Venezuela, it's a very dishonest narrative that we get in the corporate media in the Western world about the reality on the street. Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's an all-out attack on, on social movements. That's what they've seen. And, and all the, I, I wasn't in Brasilia this over, you know, just a couple of days ago, but in all of the news that I've been reading, what you're talking about is people who, who are marching peacefully trying to catch up with the rest of the marches and then the police and the military that have that just moved in and cracked down. Uh, it's the same thing that we've seen in, in protests in Rio in particular, uh, Rio is one of the places where there have been massive austerity forms which have been put into, into place just in, the, in recent months, partially because of the fact that the city is completely bankrupt after the Rio Olympics uh, and actually had to get funding from the Brazilian government in order to, to, to stay afloat. Uh, now they're, they're, they're cutting uh, pensions and tons of other things, and people have been protesting, and the response has been uh, pretty adamant in the streets um, from the police and, you know, pretty massive repression, um, you know, with tear gas and rubber bullets and stun grenades in Brasilia, just, uh, two days ago, apparently, uh, people were shot in the head. There were injuries. This is, this is kind of, we've been seeing this increasingly. Uh, and the impunity in Brazil is, uh, is, 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 is at, is, is pretty bad. Um, so not just at, uh, like a, a military force level and not just at a police force level, but also in general. So holding someone accountable for, you know, cracking down on, on protest is just not something that we're going to see. Indeed. Now, um, one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, and I don't know the answer to this, is the political translation of what we've seen uh, in, in the last week or so. And what I mean by that is that in the time leading up to the uh, 
what I would consider a coup against uh, Dilma Rousseff and the Workers' Party. In the time leading up to it, you saw a lot of elements on the left, so from social democratic elements all the way to you know socialists and communists and and others who had grown disillusioned with the Workers' Party, who saw it as kind of this bourgeois reformist party, one that didn't really uh, actually commit to you know socialism or you know really progressive policies and whatever. Now this was obviously a, a debate that was on going and is kind of always ongoing on the left and on the far left. But what I'm what I'm wondering is that as Dilma's image declined and she was ultimately forced out and everything that's happened since then, and especially the repression and what we've seen in the last uh, week or so, what has this done for the image, reputation and political, uh, you know, rank and file strength of the left and of the Workers' Party? Are they regaining some of that popularity? Are some of those disaffected elements on the left kind of coming back together in a more united front posture. Tell us a little bit about the political translation of what, what's happening. Right. No, this is a good question. I mean, I think one point is, is, is really key. The, the formation of the, the, the popular Brazil front that I mentioned earlier, which kind of unites unions and social movements and the Workers' Party and the left kind of under one umbrella, came about in defense against the, the, the push to oust Dilma Rousseff. Right? And, and uh, against the really the onslaught from the right and the, the neoliberal right that was kind of happening in the streets. Uh, it wasn't and, and, and people when they were marching back in 2015, and this isn't kind of the lead up to, to what would then happen in, 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 you know, in the coup in 2016. You know, they were very clear, particularly on the left, they were very clear that they didn't agree with the, the recent austerity policies of the Dilma Rousseff government and the financial austerity that was being put in place. Um, but they were also in support of the government. They didn't want and you know a coup to happen. They didn't want them to be taken out of power. And they also understood that you know taking the PT out of power, you weren't going to get somebody else in there from from further from the left. That was, it wasn't going to happen on a kind of a national scale. And so I think that that is 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 an important point to understand. Now your question is: Does that mean that people have grown and that there's more support for the PT? I would say not. Uh, we saw that in in the elections late last year, where the PT lost massively across the country, uh, and that's because the image has been tarnished. Um, but in terms of kind of the left uniting and coming together against the coup, against the coup government, against these austerity policies, and in support of democracy and the democratic rule, and obviously in this case, support of Dilma Rousseff, uh, that has been kind of really the the, the rallying cry. Uh, and 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 it has been fa- pretty fascinating to see kind of the the union of these different movements um, coming together. I spoke with someone uh, from the the Popular Brazil Front who was in Brasilia last year, right around the time when the the final impeachment happened in the Senate against Dilma, and she was in the streets. There was tons of people there, and she said that this was the most united that she had seen these different movements, and she had seen people there since the 1964 coup because they had something to fight against. They were uniting against this thing that was absolutely anti-democratic. And I think that that's been really interesting to see what's come of that. And we're talking, you know, there's the MST that's from the rural lands. That's the largest social movement in in the entire region. Uh, And then you've got urban movements, the MTST, which is the, 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 the homeless people's movement, um, and then obviously the unions that are there, teachers, students 
has been a really fascinating thing over the last year and a half, and they were really up in arms against the um, against the coup. You saw uh, student occupations, particularly in Paraná, in the state of Paraná, but around the country, in high schools and also universities. Over a thousand high schools and universities were occupied for several months, um, holding things down because they understood what this meant. This meant this coup would mean the rollback in education right before the um, the twenty year spending freeze for the Brazilian budget was passed in late December, they held massive, you know, marches and occupations because they understood that freezing education funds right now for the next 20 years was going to mean the future. It was going to mean their future and their ability to actually study and go to school and whatnot. And so that's been a really exciting kind of movement that was happening, you know, in the streets. Indeed. Now, uh, one other thing that we've seen over, you know, the last couple of years, in fact, and, and especially in the last year has been, and this is actually true really kind of across the board in Latin America, uh, but uh, in, in Brazil as well, and that is targeted assassinations of grassroots leaders. We saw uh, some of the landless peasants uh, uh, movement leaders who have been assassinated. We've seen other organizers who have been intimidated, beaten, harassed, and so forth. Uh, are we seeing these type of things escalating or uh, is this just kind of par for the course? In other words, uh, we, we, we've we talked a bit about the sort of, you know, uh, struggle and conflict on the street level in the urban environment. Is that translating in terms of the rural environment? This is also a good question. Um, I don't have numbers in front of me, so I can't say for sure whether this is kind of escalating. I do know that there is less of with, within the government, there is very little interest in holding people accountable and uh, in trying to stop impunity and trying to actually block things that are happening, these different assassinations that are happening out in the countryside. And the impunity, like I mentioned before, is widespread, particularly in the countryside. And this comes back to the Congress, because one of the major voting blocks within Congress is kind of the, the, the big ag. It's the big agribusiness. In fact, they hold something like 40% of the of of Congress is in the pockets of big ag or representative of 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 big ag. So that obviously comes hand in hand because that's where most of kind of the fights and the struggles in the in the rural in the countryside against whether it's when we're talking about the MST and the campesinos or whether we're talking about indigenous communities. Um, oftentimes those are conflicts over land and those are conflicts over resources. So obviously we know where the interests are in. Congress, and we obviously know where the interests are in, in, in the Temer government. One of the first ministers of, of, of justice that, that Temer put into office, this happened you know, right after he came in uh, in, in May w- within the, the interim government, um, was this guy, Morais. He uh, had come out earlier calling the MST a guerrilla movement. And in fact, he had representative at, represented as a, as a lawyer um, the, a, a paramilitary organization in Brazil. So this is that, you know, obviously you, you can't imagine, you can't even hope for justice in, in a situation like that. He is now actually a Supreme Court justice because he was appointed to the Supreme Court after the former Supreme Court justice who was in charge of the Lava Jato case for the Supreme Court was killed in a plane crash. I believe it was in January. So now he's a Supreme Court justice. This is the same guy that said the MST is a guerrilla movement had to be wiped out. So this you, you can't really hope for, for, for justice in a situation like that. Now, your question, is it increasing it? Is it on the rise? We know it's happening. It's been happening for a long time. This is, 
uh, indicative of impunity within Brazil, which is which is which has you know been terrible for decades, and it's bad now. Is it rising? It's hard to say. Uh, one other question that I want to get at, and this is again going back to the street level, um, you know, political activism. And I wrote about this back at, at the time when this, uh, you know, when this push against uh, the Rousseff government was really taking shape, that some of the organizations that were leading the anti-Dilma, anti-Lula protests were very, very dubious right-wing protests that were fronted by, you know, young, photogenic kind of activists. And I'm thinking of, you know, groups like the Free Brazil Movement, the MBL, so-called Students for Liberty, or the EPL, uh, people like Kim Kataguiri and others like that, Juliano Torres and many others. These were people who I saw at the time as essentially fronting for vested interests finance capital, the Koch brothers, many other elements that wanted to see the Rousseff government collapse, wanted to install a sort of a Goldman Sachs, neoliberal, austerity, Wall Street type of government. And that's exactly what they got. So are these organizations, these right-wing sort of libertarian, anarcho-capitalist groups, are they even around anymore? Or were they just kind of used for, for, you know, for, for media fluff and then kind of dissolved? <laughs> so they're around. I mean, the the Free Brazil movement that you mentioned still has something like two point two million people on two million likes on Facebook, and and they have a lot a large support amongst the the white upper class in Brazil. Um, are they mobilizing? No, not at all. In fact, when they when they tried to mobilize, there was there was supposed to be a march uh, that they were supposed to organize in the days following. Was it the days following the general strike? I believe. Or if not, it was in it was in March after a, a, another massive march that that of, of from the left that had taken the streets, and it was supposed to be the Sunday afterwards. I can't remember if it was in March or April, but there was supposed to be this very big march, and they couldn't even turn out a couple thousand people in major cities around the country. Um, so they've kind of disappeared. Um, Did they ever really exist? I mean, that's the real question. Or were they really kind of an astroturf kind of media, uh, you know, congealed? fraud it's it was uh, this this is a great question man and uh and i don't really have the answer to it they're still doing their thing you know like free brazil movement they're on facebook they're posting their videos but as an actual hey we're gonna get out we're gonna organize and we're gonna come together and we are a people that it, it it's almost non-existent uh and and we see that now now the the biggest comparison that I've seen to these groups in the states is is obviously the Tea Party. But the Tea Party has its little sectors in different areas. They they actually have kind of people on the ground that are organizing these movements. They turn lar- large numbers of people for very big marches, uh, and they're there kind of as sounding boards and to send out information to those people that are following them on Facebook and whatnot. But it's not as if they actually have you know uh, the, the their tiny the uh, headquarters in different cities and they're kind of organizing a local level. I haven't seen that at all. 
Yeah, in, indeed. And that, I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, even at the time, I thought that this was, you know, more a, a, a marketing campaign than it was an actual political movement. And I guess along those lines, I'm interested in some of the other groups that were really instrumental in pushing the uh, the, the, the coup against Rousseff. I mean, one of them, and forgive my uh, totally uh, my total inability to do any Portuguese, but uh, Vem Pra Rua, or Come to the Streets. I mean, this was an organization that I had written about that is directly funded by Brazil's elites, including uh, Brazil's richest man, Jorge Paulo Lehmann. So I'm wondering, what is Lehmann doing right now? What is Big Capital doing right now? I mean, where do they stand? Are they openly backing the right or have they had to, for PR purposes, back away? Most of these different uh, individuals, big capitals, whatever else, I mean, they're, it, it's very clear that they're in support of the Temer government. And we've seen that in the media over the last year. Uh, and, 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 and we've seen that in, in kind of the support for the Temer government from very, very powerful issues um, and interests. And so I think that that is that's existent. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing this to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, as Temer he gets tainted, ACO gets tainted, all these other people kind of fall into the, the well that is the, 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 the massive Lava, Lava scandal. It's easy just to kind of toss them out and then continue with the reforms, continue with the, with, with the major austerity push and the privatizations, which is what these, the, you know, with, what, what these different individuals and what these groups have wanted all along. Yeah, and and just for listeners, when I'm when I'm talking about somebody like Lehman, I'm not talking about you know just some some billionaire. I'm talking about one of the world's wealthiest people. Uh, number th- uh, at least as of 2013 was number 32 on the billionaire index, right next to George Soros and Ka- Carl Icahn. This is the owner of Anheuser Busch. We're talking about one of the most powerful people in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's that I think that this is an aspect of this story that is oftentimes sort of overlooked that you have these two, you know, the, these two factions kind of fighting it out. But the right wing is not just the right wing, of course, as in Venezuela, as in Ecuador, as in Nicaragua. The right wing is in many ways a front for international neoliberal finance capital. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what we're seeing now and, and across the region. Indeed. All right. So uh, let's take a break. Uh, On the other side of the break, I want to kind of pick up from some of these issues and talk a little bit more about what's happening in Brazil, but particularly the regional dynamic, what's happening, broadly speaking, in Latin America, because what we're seeing in Brazil is in some ways a microcosm of what we're seeing around the region. So uh, stick with us. I'll come back and continue the conversation with Mike Fox. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and Would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Mr. 
a bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about sufferer at all Joshua said One man of too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is people together Would you believe me? Love and togetherness That's what it means Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Do you believe me? People pulling together. Oh, love and togetherness. That's what it means. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Mike Fox. His his work is some of the best, really. If you want to understand what's going on in Brazil and uh, you know uh, Latin America generally, you got to follow him on Twitter at mfox underscore us and of course uh, uh, he was the co-author of the book Latin America's Turbulent Transitions The Future of 21st Century Socialism very important book to pick up if you can so Mike I want to uh, sort of shift gears a little bit and talk a, a little bit more about some of the regional dynamics here because in Brazil we're seeing sort of the conflict playing out both on the streets and in the halls of government and similarly we're seeing uh, you know those kinds of conflicts taking place in Argentina since we've seen the rise of Mauricio Macri and the the right wing sort of recapturing the the reins of government there. Obviously in Ecuador we recently had an election where the left managed to victory but the right was on the streets destabilizing the country as they're wont to do. Uh, in Venezuela of course is probably the biggest hotspot uh, in Latin America as far as destabilization goes and the government versus the right-wing uh, so-called opposition. So if you could, could you kind of place Brazil within the regional context and help people to understand how Brazil fits into some of these trends we're seeing broadly? <clears throat> so I think in order to understand that, we need to go back a little bit to what Brazil represented amid the, the pink tide itself and to mid kind of the left movement that we had over the last 15 years. Brazil was not the the on on the road to socialism of the 21st century it wasn't a Bolivia or an Ecuador or Venezuela or a Cuba, but it was an extremely important partner within the region amid the the, the larger kind of leftist shift. Right, um, it, that was one of the main tenets and it was the most progressive one of the Workers Party under both Lula and Dilma. It was kind of the major place where they were really able to make their mark, stand up against the United States in particular, uh, and to back those progressive and leftist governments in the region that were, that were you know, pushing policies 
that the U.S. was 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 in particular, uh, you know, uh, up in arms against. Uh, and I think that's a really important point because they had broken this kind of long-term um, foreign policy strategy of Brazil that had been in place for roughly, you know, 150 to 200 years uh, that had been kind of subservient to the United States that had said that Brazil was kind of a hegemon in the region, but it wasn't going to stand in kind of solidarity with others. It was going to fight for what it needed, but in connection with the United States, it was very subservient to come to the North. And that was a major, major break that we saw with, with the Workers' Party. And it was also kind of this whole movement of the BRICS and everything else that was happening, kind of very exciting, kind of 2000, you know, 2003 up through 2009, 2010, and kind of the beginning of the Dilma government. So obviously with kind of this, the, the left, the, the, the shift away and with the right gaining power, Brazil falls in the middle of all the rest of this. As Brazil fell, it's also kind of gone with it out the door immediately. Uh, any, you know, support for those those left governments and any, you know, expecting that Brazil was going to continue with any sort of policy within as soon as Temer came into office. In fact, I think it was the very next day he sent one of the leading members of Congress to Washington to start talking with people there. Um, Temer and Mauricio Macri in Argentina have been, you know, very tight uh, and they've both been pushing kind of austerity reforms in kind of their own way in the different governments. But and and in fact, when the um, when you had things happening in Venezuela, you oftentimes have these the those same kind of movements that we were mentioning before. They're posting things on their on their Facebook page, you know, talking about oh we need to stand up in support of the protesters in Venezuela, or you know, vice versa, folks in Venezuela saying hey look at the coup that's great that this just happened you took out uh, those those rats quote unquote in Brazil and so I think this is this is part of this kind of larger overall trend uh, and 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 yeah that's what we're seeing Brazil fits within that within this large austerity push uh, and it's it's it, it's pretty intense indeed and I think that uh, you, you kind of really hit the nail on the head there because in fact the Temer uh, even before there was a Temer government we had reports and I believe it Glenn Greenwald had broken the story in the intercept and it was picked up all over the place that uh, they already had a short list of the government even before they had ousted Rousseff and that short list included all the banker boys all the Goldman Sachs connections all the stuff that you would expect from a Wall Street orchestrated coup and uh, similarly with Mauricio Macri and uh, his cabinet, which was in many ways, uh, you know, sort of a Wall Street rogues gallery uh, as far as, you know, Argentina goes. And so in in some ways, you know, we've seen sort of the right wing uh, resurgence in Latin America, in South America specifically. But I think that needs to be understood in in effect as Wall Street and finance capital reasserting control over Latin America. Yeah. There is, there is one point, though, that I think I was talking with a, a union leader just yesterday uh, here in Florianópolis, and it was fascinating something he mentioned to me, which was understanding the Brazilian corruption system, that in, endemic within this system, and that was that the left really was never in power and the right really was never out of power within Brazil. You had leftist policies, you had these social programs, but you still had a system there 
that was kind of controlling things from within. Lula, when he ran for office in 2002, right before he was elected, he actually had to come out and write a letter to financial capital, to the big banks to say, I promise I'm not going to, you know, trying to push for nationalizations. I'm not going to try and, you know, shake things up too much. We're going we're, we're gonna to do things the way we need to just to, 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 to squail the, their concerns to make sure that he wasn't going to lose that third or fourth election that he, you know, that he was running for. And he was able to win because he joined forces with the PMDB. PMDB is obviously now in power and other center and right wing groups. So at least in the, in the case of Brazil, Brazil wasn't, you know, the, the, the Workers' Party coming to power wasn't able to kind of move in and, and break this old system that they were able to do in, say, Venezuela and Ecuador and Bolivia in many ways. But it actually, that, that, that system was still there. Economist that we had writing for when I was the editor of NACLA, uh, Paulo Clias, he wrote very clearly about how, yes, um, you know, the working class was doing excellent under the Workers' Party. Millions were lifted out of poverty, but so was financial capital. They were also making millions of dollars. Commodity prices were high, and they were able to still kind of sustain everything. And they were they were willing to kind of play the game with the left as much as possible. Uh, but as soon as the economy started to tank, and that's what we saw back in kind of 2013, 2014, commodity prices start to fall, and Dilma is then reelected into power, and that's really when we saw people start to hit the streets. I mean, within you know just a couple of months of Dilma's second term, and then that's really when we saw this massive push, you know, for her impeachment over the next year and a half. One really important, I mean, to to, to get back into the the Brazil point really really quickly about her impeachment. Eduardo Cunha, who was the guy within Congress who led the impeachment, he was the head of the lower house, he only uh, dropped the impeachment, he only filed the papers, the motion to begin the impeachment. He did it on the exact same day that the PT, members of PT in the, ex, in the Ethics Commission confirmed that they were going to vote against him in the Ethics Commission because there was a whole ethics um, uh, debate and question within the, the ethics commission around Eduardo Cunha and about his own corruption and bribery uh, and offshore accounts. And so when they decided to go forward with that, the very same day, he then put forward the papers to, to impeach Dilma Rousseff, which then you know, within five months, six months, that became a reality. So just to show the, what's happening here is that there's, there's, there's complicity here. We, we know because it came out and it was leaked that he actually went to Dilma and went to others and said, hey, you know, I won't do this if, if you don't, you know, if you don't go forward with, with myself and the ethics committee. And Dilma said, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make deals like that. And said, okay, well, then we're going to impeach you. And so that, the, these games are, are, are kind of what's happening on the inside. But it is true that what we've seen is this resurgence of power uh, and interest of finally kind of taking back that power of, of big financial capital, big banks, uh, and I think that that is extremely key to understand, but key to understand that, that at least in Brazil, they were still doing well under the Workers' Party, and they didn't really have a need to, to knock that out of power until things started to change. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And one and and you mentioned commodity prices, which is actually where I was about to go. So uh, that's sort of a good segue into that because one of the things that I think people sometimes forget is that Brazil is a major energy exporter. Almost, in fact, if you look at the stats, 
almost as significant as Venezuela. I mean, it's very close in terms of actual crude exports, crude oil exports. And so, um, you know, the, the collapse of commodity prices really hit Brazil very hard. And I wonder, and I, I want to get your take on this, the extent to which the uh, collapse of commodity prices, particularly oil, really enabled this coup. In other words, had that not happened and had the prevailing economic conditions of, say, 2010, 11, 12 continued on through 13, 14, and 15, would they have really been able to push through the kind of coup against Rousseff uh, that they did? I don't think so. No, not at all. And that's because, you know, Rousseff, in, in the very beginning of her term, right before March it started to happen there in March... April of, of 2015. And that's when you really saw people kind of hitting the street from those pseudo Tea Party style movements. Um, her popularity had dropped to roughly 10%. Now, it is important to point out that Temers right now is something like 4%, but her popularity had dropped to 10%. The economy was already tanking. She put into place a finance minister named Joaquin Levy. Joaquin Levy was an, you know, an austerity minister. Uh, and the whole reason why uh, she felt that she had to do that, or at least this is what we understand largely, is to stave off the downgrading of the investment status, which, you know, to, to keep it from, to keep Brazil's investment um, from, from, from being turned into to junk bonds, which is what happened later on that year. And then she tanked them anyway, because it didn't do what they were supposed to do. So, so really, so, this- so in other words, she was appeasing finance capital with an appointment. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, but that wasn't it wasn't just the financial appointment. This is happening in a lot of different ministries in which when she came back into power, it was really she was really coming back from from a, a, a not a place of power, but a place of um, <clears throat> of of almost being although she was the president, the PMDB had taken a much more prominent role. Uh, and that's she placed kind of trying to appease the PMDB. I think that she saw the writing on the wall and said, well, if I give these cabinet posts out to all these different people, then they might not take me out of power or they might not go in that direction. And obviously with the movement, which what was happening, you know, th- there, there was no way of stopping it. But had commodity prices stayed high, had the, the price of oil stayed high. And also, I mean, Brazil's a major poultry exporter. It's a major meat exporter. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, you know, like I said, the agribusiness is huge. Um, and so had all those all those commodity prices also stayed high. We, we wouldn't have seen the need for her to have been taken out of office. It was when the economy started to fall, they could use that as an excuse to get people out in the streets saying, well, look, she's not doing enough. It's her fault. It's the PT's fault. And as soon as they had a scapegoat, then they were able to move against it. Of course, the scapegoat that they finally led with was saying that she had um, you know, uh, made some budgetary maneuvers in order to, 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 to pay off bills and to keep the social programs going. Um, which <laughs> I have to say is a very interesting, interesting point. As soon as they impeached her, as soon as the impeachment ended, two or three days later, the Congress legalized those same maneuvers that it had used to impeach her. So that's just that just shows the ridiculousness of her impeachment itself. It had nothing to do with corruption, even though that was what was played out on kind of an international scene. Um, it had to do with getting someone out of office to, to put in place what they had really wanted to have in place for a long, long time. 
I want to ask you, uh, in the time that we do have remaining, I want to ask you a little bit about the relationship between what we're seeing in Brazil, the politics playing out there, and uh, political developments in the United States and the connections between those two. So obviously Donald Trump, uh, in the you know since Dilma Rousseff uh, was was ousted, we've had this uh, Trump phenomenon here in the U.S. and um, Essentially, I think, you know, even more than under Obama or under George W. Bush, we now really do have a government of Goldman Sachs. I mean, you literally have the former president of Goldman Sachs as one of the key financial advisors in the United States uh, working, you know, with the SEC, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, some of these other individuals that are now in direct roles. I was referring to Gary Cohn, but there are many others as well. So um, similarly in Brazil, we have people like Paulo Leme and Murilo Portugal and, and, and many others who have these direct connections to Goldman Sachs and the big banks. What I want to know is that uh, do we think that the Trump administration, given the people who are there, given the direct and tangible links between D.C. and Brasilia, what role is the U.S. playing in this? Will they try to prop up this government if there is a real attempt to Unseated. What role do you think the U.S. is going to play here? It's a good question. Um, I don't. I don't. The, the U.S. government's not going to attempt to try and prop up Temer. Um, you know, Temer can leave. Someone else is going to come in. The next in line is this guy named Rodrigo Maya. He's the he's the current head of the of the Chamber of Deputies of the lower house. He's the son of Cesar Maya, who was a, a former mayor of of Rio de Janeiro for a long, long time. Um, you know, he's kind of he's with the Dems as the political party, but he's it's it, it's business as usual. It's par for the course. He's mixed up in the same kind of corruption stuff. Uh, and, you know, and he has the same interests that, that, that most of the people do that are in, that are in that spot. He's more than willing to to play the game and walk the line. So I don't think we're going to see the U.S. government coming out, uh, in, you know, in support of Temer, you know, trying to make any moves. Um, you know, we have we've got elections. Many people are looking for those elections back in the end of, of 2008. That's kind of 2018. I'm sorry, end of next year. That's where kind of the social movements on the left is really looking for. And there's a, this this very big push to you know for for Lula. He's already said he's going to run. Lula, the the former um, PT president, um, and he is the front runner in this thing. Now at the same time, we've got the media. We've got everybody who's trying to taint Lula as absolutely much as possible to make sure he's not going to come back into power. Uh, but even if he came back into power. What kind of um, control, what kind of power would he have in the government if the Congress remains kind of in the hands of the right wing uh, and this, the, these, these powerful agribusiness and financial capital that we see right now? That is, that is, a, is, 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 is a big question because that's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, now, it, but to get back to the, the U.S. government, I think there are some, there are some, some, some things there that it'd be good to tease out a little bit. We don't know, obviously, that there were, there were questions around the coup time. Well, what, what, what's the role that the United States is playing? We know the role that the U.S. has always played in the region, in Latin America, in support of coups and whatnot. Um, yeah, exactly. What we, and what we do know is that the U.S. was spying on Petrobras, uh, which is the state oil company. It's the Petrobras, the same company that's now had the massive scandals up against it. And this was happening... And we know that because of you know WikiLeaks. This is happening as of 2006, 2007, 2008. We know that it was act- that it actually came out and spied on Dilma. In fact, Dilma was you know former President Dilma was was planning a trip to go to Washington to meet with Obama in 2010 or 2011. She canceled the trip because of 
the the WikiLeaks revelations that the United States had been spying on Petrobras. Two years later, um, it came out that they had actually been spying on Dilma, top officials within the the Dilma government, uh, and on millions of Brazilians. So we know that the, the NSA has, has been playing a role. Um, we also know that uh, José Serra, José Serra is, the, is, is with the PSDB, the, the right-wing, um, the major right-wing party. He is the... Um, He's been, you know, he's a top official within, he's been the, the foreign minister within the, the Temer government. Uh, and he, we know through WikiLeaks um, documents that he came out and told major oil companies that he was going to try and push to open up the oil market for them if he was able to come into power in 2010. And we know that Temer was also an informant for the, for the U.S. embassy here back in, I think it was 2006 or 2007 when he was in the Congress. So we know that there's these connections. Now, Beyond that, it's difficult to say what game is actually being what what you know how tight are these relationships right now? How tight are communications happening? But I know that the U.S. government is very pleased to have uh, somebody like Temer uh, in power, and 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 hopes that that's going to continue. Yeah, exactly right. Now, um, I, I just want to I just want people to understand why this this matters and, 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 and what sort of relevance this has, both in terms of, uh, you know, what U.S. politics and a connection to Latin America, but broadly about imperialism, because really this is part of uh, what I would consider to be sort of the pushback that the empire has really kind of had against, you know, any forces, even sort of capitalist forces that have attempted to coalesce uh, as a counterweight against it. Obviously, BRICS, uh, you know, Brazil featuring prominently within the BRICS, obviously the regional groupings that uh, Chavez had put together like ALBA and uh, SALAC and others. So in some ways, we can see this as kind of an attempt to tilt the you know tilt the scales back towards you know the sort of the 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 total hegemony of the United States at a time when particularly China, but other countries are looking at Latin America and potentially seeing uh, investment opportunities and uh, opportunities for, if not outright alliances, then certainly increased cooperation. In other words, the question is, once again, is Latin America uh, the U.S.'s backyard? Well, it's always, it's always the backyard, right? And it always... Uh that the U.S. will always look at Latin America as the backyard, whether or not it actually is. Right. And that's, uh, that's the question. Is it, is it returning to being the backyard is what I'm asking. I think, I think that if we look at what foreign policy has been under Brazil uh, and kind of the about face and the shift back to the foreign policy we had before the Workers' Party, we can definitely see uh, that taking place where Brazil sees itself as a sub-hegemon within the region, um, playing out, obviously, with its allies now that are also kind of in cahoots with the U.S. government, um, and also kind of taking, not taking orders, but following the, following the line of, of, of the U.S. government. Now, of course, we still have cases, we still have Venezuela, we still have Bolivia, we still have Ecuador, uh, countries that are kind of still trying to stand up to U.S. hegemony, uh, and trying to still stand up to kind of the regional integration that we saw that you just mentioned, you know, the ALBA, the CELAC, the UNESUR, and that still remains extremely important in the region. Uh, and, you know, a, a country like Bolivia, you, it, it's one of the, it's, it's, its GDP growth each year is, is one of the strongest in the region. 
um, and and that continues to be extremely strong. So I think that though we have kind of this this shift back into the U.S. sphere of influence for say Brazil and Argentina, Honduras, like you mentioned, uh, and other places, it's not across the board, and it's not as widespread as 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 a lot of people you know have been. And you know, particularly analysts and pundits have been have been talking about for the last couple of years. Uh, I, I want to just kind of close our conversation here by asking, you know, and I mean, it, it seems like kind of a dumb question, and I hate to ask it, but whatever, I'm gonna. Uh, um, what what do we sh- what should we expect? I mean, how do you see this playing out in the near term? What are what are the things that you see, you know, around the bend in the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of months? And then the obviously relatedly, uh what do you what's the long-term outlook here? I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball and, you know, prediction is whatever, but in in the case of Brazil, I think it matters because, to a large extent, Brazil is almost a barometer for the region and, and, and some of the contradictions and some of the conflicts and those things that are so deeply entrenched in Brazil, as I said earlier in our conversation, are in, in some ways a microcosm for the region. So in understanding where Brazil is going, maybe we have an idea of where the region generally is going. So how do you see this playing out in the near term, medium term and long term? So I, I just want to mention really quick uh, to your point about the barometer and also to, to the U.S. Um, a, absolutely. I mean, the 1964 coup happened in Brazil, and then it kind of created a domino effect a, around the region yeah. itself, right? That's yeah. where we saw kind of the dictatorships fall in line throughout the 1970s, you know, in the early 80s. Um, there's a very fascinating thing about Brazil, and this is before I get into kind of the short term and long term. And it's the you mentioned before the kind of the Trump phenomenon, the connection between Trump and Temer and Brazil, and the Brazil U.S. connection is very very fascinating, because although yeah you know Trump is a is, is a populist, different policies in many different ways, uh, and Temer is just a straightforward kind of neoliberal pro financial capital guy. Um, there are these these really interesting connections between the scandals that are happening up in with Trump and Temer down here, with how people are kind of responding and trying to respond, uh, how, you know, how this is all playing out. And I think, so I would say not just looking at Brazil for what it means for Latin America, but I think looking at Brazil for what it means for the United States and particularly the resistance against the Trump administration, how people are kind of organizing and how people are, you know, are are building movements. Uh, And that's one of the things that I want to be focusing and reporting on a lot more in, in the coming months is how people are organizing on the ground here. What does that look like? Uh, what's the response? And, and what are the lessons that people, you know, both in the North and South can learn from each other? Um, in terms of the short term, where is this going? Man, Brazil is a roller coaster ride. It's a soap opera. Uh, and you just, <laughs> and it's as if they're changing the script every single day. You never know what's going to happen. Um, the, the leaks, you know, th- this latest leak that happened. When, uh, from from Temer that kind of tagged him in the middle of this whole scandal, they they they've been coming for for several months and suddenly one will one will drop and then a bunch of cabinet mem- Temer's cabinet members have to step down because they suddenly are tagged into the middle of this uh, of the corruption scandal. A leak could come and it could change this whole thing. What I think we are going to see is continued pressure from the social movements. They're going to remain in the streets. That's what they've already been talking about. There are some talk about holding another general strike. Nothing solidified there, but I know people are discussing it. I think that there's going to be even more organizing around 
this whole corruption scandal because Temer is just, you know, he, he just, th- th- there's no way he can kind of wiggle out of this one. His voice is there. He's definitely involved, even if he's not going to step down. Um, so I think we're going to see that in the coming weeks, in the coming two weeks, what we can expect is a vote on the labor reform in the Senate. It's already been approved by the Congress. It was fast tracked, so it's moving very quick. Just two days ago, in a, on, or on Tuesday, yeah, just two days ago, in the finance, the Senate Finance Committee, they, they actually got into, and there was like a brawl between the Workers' Party representatives and somebody else. They passed it. Uh, they, they approved a reading. They're expected to pass it out of the Finance Committee next week, and then we can see it on the Senate floor in another week. That's going to create even more protests because this is really touching Brazilian workers. And this is one of the fascinating things about what has happened is the fact that when the coup came, um, you know, obviously there was massive organizing around it to try and stop it. But, you know, everyday Brazilians, they're watching their football. They're, 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 they know that there's corruption there. They don't really know what to believe. And they weren't really touched personally by what was going on. What we've seen in recent months is this, this, this uptick in the amount of people that are willing to get in the streets. You had over a million people that marched on March 15th against the, the pension reform. You had the general strike, which is on April uh, 28th. 35 million people supposedly uh, participated in this general strike, and it shut down uh, public transportation, schools, banks, buses, you know, around the country. Then we had this this 200 march of, of as many as 200,000 people that happened up in Brasilia just two days ago and continue marches around the country. So I think that we're going to continue to see this mobilization. And because people are feeling this for the first time, they're going to touch my pension. They want to touch, you know, they, these are my rights. This is my this is the, this is my holiday bonus. These this this is the amount of money I make. This is my union. And people are really feeling this directly. So I think we can expect to see kind of continued pushback against that as the labor reform goes forward. Um, what all this is going to look like. I think we're going to continue to see kind of a really strong social media response. Social media is huge in Brazil. Uh, and, and just yesterday, the, the tweets were wild about ja, we want our rights now, direct elections and Temer out. So I think we're going to continue to see all that movement on the very short term. Exactly what's going to happen, that is anyone, you know, that, that's, that, and that's anyone's guess. That's the, that's the crystal ball I wish I had. Long term, I think we're going to continue to see up until the 2018 elections next year. Uh, it's going to be it's going to get intense and it's going to continue that way. Um, the, the media is going to continue to try and take down Lula and any semblance of him as uh, as, as a potential candidate. They're going to try and tag him up with uh, corruption scandals and find anything they can do, including Sergio Moro, who's the judge who's been kind of leading the whole Lava Jato thing, he's going to continue to find ways to, to call in Lula again uh, so the media can can have their field day with him and try and make it seem as though he's guilty of something or another. And we're going to see the same thing having to do with Dilma. Um, we're going to see this, continue to see the criminalization of the MST, of the unions, and continue to see you know, repression in the streets. Um, the corruption isn't going to go anywhere. The allegations, the investigations are going to continue. There are eight members, so already Temer's government since he came to office last May, um, six of his cabinet members have had to step down. At least six have had to step down. Eight other cabinet members are now under investigation for corruption. And three of his aides uh, have also had to step down in just the last six months. So we're going to continue to see members of the Temer government. Even, even if Temer stays in power somehow, we're going to see people and cabinet members dropping as those investigations continue and they get caught up in them. Uh, and I think that we're going to continue to see kind of the ball rolling to, in some direction. It's really hard to say 
it's really hard to say what, but everyone kind of has their eyes looking toward 2018. That's that's kind of the big the big deal. I think Lou is going to run. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But I think he's going to I think he's going to have a, a big showing. Uh, the question now is is who the right's going to put up because ACO Neves was kind of their was kind of their guy, uh, and obviously he got caught up in this whole JBS scandal too. So you know who are they going to to put up? There's there's several candidates that the right and financial capital have that they could that they could throw up to run. Um, but that's really kind of the next big t- on, on the timeline. That's what people are looking at. Absolutely. Well, um, there's a lot more to say about all of these issues, but we'll have to leave it there. We're, we're, we're just out of time. I want to thank you, Mike Fox for coming on the show. Uh, guys, I mean, you heard it. Mike has got, you know, such a wealth of knowledge about all of the different issues, both in Brazil and in the region. I highly recommend that you follow him on Twitter at mfox underscore us. Pick up the book. Uh, Latin America's Turbulent Transitions, The Future of 21st Century Socialism. Hopefully, Mike, we can have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you. And listeners, thank you again as always, and I will speak to you real soon.